So there are few bacteria in history more famous than the one that causes the plague. But what exactly is that bacteria? What bacteria causes the plague? How did the plague impact history? How did we overcome the plague? All this and so much more on this episode of Short Stories of Bacteria. Hello, everybody. Welcome back, each and every one of you, to the podcast that is currently sweeping the nation, um, the incredible short stories of bacteria. I, as always, am your host, Dr. K, and I'd like to welcome each and every one of you, both newcomers and non-newcomers alike, back to the show. Um, If you haven't already, be sure to like, follow, and share um, on whichever source of podcasts you are using also make sure to like follow share on whatever social media you can find us on or by word of mouth should you desire if you have any questions you'd like to ask about bacteria or if you just want to ask a question about science more broadly you can also reach out to our instagram page at science with dr k that is science with dr underscore k the link to that page can be found in the notes of this podcast now um one of the cool things that we can do when we're looking at bacteria Uh, is to track down the history of different diseases. What is the actual disease? What is the bacteria or fungus or virus that causes the actual disease? How did this disease impact humanity? How did humanity end up overcoming the disease if it overcame the disease at all? Um, The last time we did this sort of, um, I guess, a historical episode, last time we did a historical episode, something like this, um, we focused on the disease tuberculosis, and we talked about the really dramatic history of the disease and and milestones in its history, especially how the therapy changed over time. We're going to be doing a similar historical episode today, but this time we're going to be focusing on possibly the most famous bacteria of all time. Um, And that is, of course, Yersinia pestis, which goes by the more common name, the plague, or the Black Plague, or the Black Death, or the Pestilence, or countless other names as it's been known throughout history. So um, what is the plague? How does it work? How long has it been around? Um, we're going to jump into these questions and learn learn a little bit more about the bacteria and the microbiology behind this. But probably the best place to kick this off is with the most fundamental question. Where did the plague come from? What was its evolution? How did we end up with something that is so deadly? Now, this is a really, really good question. And a lot of these questions can be answered by coevolution, right? So that where you have an attacking organism and it evolves alongside, it evolves like all its mechanisms of virulence or mechanisms of attack. It evolves those alongside the target organism, right? But unlike in the case of tuberculosis, which grew and evolved alongside us, we don't actually have good indication that the causative agent of the plague had such a similar Um, such a similar co-evolution. Instead, this deadly little uh, bacteria emerges out of a whole family of bacteria that are just all about this molecular mayhem, and that is the genus Yersinia. So as we pull each of these species in for questioning, and as we interview the family and those impacted by Yersinia, we see that Yersinia pestis, remember that's the one that causes the plague, Yersinia pestis is not alone in its targeting of the human race and attacking humans. It turns out there's a whole batch of bad actors in this part of the evolutionary tree. Um, Yersinia pestis, or pestis 
brethren include the likes of Yersinia enterocolitica, enterocolitica, excuse me, Yersinia enterocolitica, which possesses um, some different strains that can target humans and animals alike. They they give people fever and a whole bunch of other awful symptoms. Enterocolitica is particularly nefarious because it's extremely subtle in the way that it targets its prey. It oftentimes is a source of contagion without showing any signs or symptoms of disease. Um, so that's one, Enterocolitica. In addition to Enterocolitica, there's another one called Yersinia pseudotuberculosis. Um, that's uh, Yersinia pestis' mischievous elder brother. This one also trudges about the world. It's causing sickness all throughout the world. Pseudotuberculosis is the causative agent of what is known as Far East Scarlet Fever, or Izumi Fever in Japan. This one isn't particularly fatal, but it too is found in humans and animals alike, and it causes fever, it can cause toxic shock, sometimes it can even cause kidney failure. So if we look at the Yersinia group more broadly, the genus Yersinia, while there are a bunch of bacteria within Yersinia that aren't too bad. There are some instances of Yersinia which are really, really nasty and will try and damage humans, and it's not great. Now, it is from this this group of mischievous bacteria that Yersinia pestis emerges, and what it does is it breaks off and evolves from Yersinia ter- pseudotuberculosis relatively recently, only about only about like six thousand years ago. So that's very, very short time ago within the context of evolutionary time. Now, while this is still a really, really short time, the rapid emergence of Yersinia pestis is paralleled by this really rapid molecular armament. So it's simultaneously, in addition to just evolving at the same time, it acquires two different bits of these circular bits of DNA called plasmids. And what these plasmids provide is they provide pestis with this blueprint to make multiple molecular weapon systems. And with these molecular weapon systems, pestis is able to attack human cells. So, armed with these molecular weapons, coupled with its somewhat suspect history within the Yersinia genus, the fledgling Y. pestis is now fully equipped not only to infect humans, but to infect humans in a rapid in a deadly sort of way. And in fact, actually, it might be appropriate here to discuss to discuss the plot behind this pestilence. How exactly does something like why pestis work to tackle such a large entity such as a human? Um, this is actually a very complicated question. And in fact, there are still many, many things that are being discovered about the plague. Um, but that being said, we have learned a whole bunch since our first encounter with this bacteria. So it turns out that Yersinia pestis, I'll just call it pestis from now on, Pestis and its whole infection model it works hand-in-hand hand with another pestilent organism, and that would be the common flea. So the whole mechanism of pathogenesis by pestis hinges on the fact that the bacteria can live very happily within the digestive tract of the flea. From here, from that digestive tract, it can very easily get passage to other mammalian hosts. Um, what's a better way? Okay, what's, let me see if I can explain a little better. So essentially... The weapons that Pestis uses on its victims, on its like human victims, they can also be repurposed. And through these like slight alterations in this weapon, Pestis can essentially latch on to a part of the esophagus of the flea. And in doing so, it's able to maintain this toehold in the in the gullet of the flea. Now, by attaching in this way, 
pestis then is able to build itself up, like it just keeps growing and growing, and it constructs this this partial blockage of the esophagus of the flea. Now, fleas, as it turns out, they rely on so-called blood meals in order to survive. But the problem for the flea at this point is it has this big bacterial blockage in its esophagus. And so, avert your ears for the squeamish, while blood from the blood meals just starts pouring down the flea's throat, a lot of it is going to get caught on the blockage. And what that does is it causes the flea to regurgitate blood back into the host. But in doing so, just because it's like, it's just almost like vomiting into the host. But in doing so, by this regurgitation, the flea inadvertently releases the plague bacteria into whatever it is that it was initially chomping on. Now, wait a minute, Dr. K, you say horrified by this description. Did you just say that the flea is essentially regurgitating pestis into whatever it is that it's feeding upon? But fleas, as it turns out, bite so many things. Yes, as horrible as that sounds, that is essentially how the plague works. And as you've already realized, fleas do bite a whole bunch of things, especially things like rats, especially things like prairie dogs and other and rodents more broadly. So this is why these animals, especially rats and mice, were super important during the plague. Because the fleas kept biting all of these different rodents, they were establishing a reservoir of infected organisms. And from this reservoir, more fleas got infected, and as a result, more humans would get bitten by plague-infested fleas. Um, but enough about plagues and fleas. Now we must pass on to the very sorry description of plague in humans. So it turns out that it was, well, still is a truly awful thing how pestis infects humans. As pestis floods the human, it's operating on a timeline since the immune system is going to try and kill it. And so as a result, pestis rushes to the lymph nodes where it grows into something called a bubo at the Bubo, I think that's how it's pronounced. A bubo at the sites of the lymph nodes, essentially, often, or oftentimes the, that'd be the armpits. Um, so this so-called bubo is the basis for the term the bubonic plague. Um, but after setting up shop in the lymph nodes, then the plague starts to spread via the limbic system and via the blood throughout the rest of the body. And this is why people who had the plague would get boils all throughout the body because it's totally systemic. They would get boils throughout the body. They would get inflammation. Their immune system would be essentially ripped to shreds by, by pestis. They'd get blood coagulation, tissue failure, and eventually death. Death via the plague is particularly painful, um, and it occurs usually really rapidly in about a week's time. And the victim is contagious the entire time, not only because not only is this plague traveled by bite and by blood, but it is also um, transported via droplets as well. So it's really, really terrible. It's a really, really awful sickness. Um, but enough of that, enough of the pain, enough of the sickness. Let us hear of its history and how it was conquered. Now, if you'll recall, Pestis breaks off from its mischievous brethren, Pseudotuberculosis and Enterocolitica, somewhere around 6,000 years ago. And it appears that Pestis wastes no time in getting started killing humans. Pestis is found in prehistoric individuals as early as 5,000 years ago, a mere 1,000 years after its initial evolution. Um, we actually have little to go on at this point, but the prevalence of this bacteria on so many different bodies in antiquity indicates that before we could even record history, there were likely pandemics that involved Yersinia pestis. What those looked like, we probably will never know. Um, 
But it's totally possible that whole towns, whole cities would just fall at this stage in pestis evolution. Um, it appears then that this bacteria induces plagues in fits and starts, right? It, it starts and then stops and then starts and then stops because then the bacteria appears to lie dormant for centuries or, or perhaps it kills its victims very subtly from the shadows. But no real prevalence or at least recorded prevalence to my knowledge of the plague shows up for some time. There is some reference in the Bible of Philistines experiencing a whole bunch of tumors and boils, I believe in the second book of Samuel. This could have been the plague, but again, there's no confirmation of this for sure. In fact, in in all honesty, Pestis appears to be pretty quiet until it emerges with an absolute vengeance during one of the greatest plagues of all time, the plague of Justinian. Now, at this time, it's approximately 540 AD. Night is currently falling on the Roman Empire, and the leadership of the empire is in the hands of Emperor Justinian, who resides very morosely in his palace in Constantinople. We hear whispers from our historians of antiquity as they start to make reference to signs and symptoms of this mysterious-sounding disease. And through this, we're able to ascertain its identity in lieu of genetic evidence, which eventually, once the genetic evidence did show up, um, it did confirm the identity of the culprit as being uh, Yersinia pestis. There's a Roman official at this time um, who goes by the name of Procopius of Caesarea, um, who's in power in Israel at this time. His principality in particular is hit hard by the plague, and he spends a whole lot of time feverishly chronicling the symptoms. He mentions swollen lymph nodes. He mentions oozing boils on people. He mentions hysteria. He mentions a devastating death toll. At the same time, his contemporary, a Christian bishop by the name of John of Ephesus, he corroborates some of the tales from Procopius of Caesarea, um, discussing a whole, bunch, a whole bunch of horrible symptoms, a whole bunch of dead people on the streets, an absolutely terrified populace. So great is the death toll, actually, during the Justinian plague, that the rate of burial cannot keep up with the rate of death. Justinian knows this, and so he orders the removal of the dead from the city and the burial of these individuals in mass graves as far from the populace as possible. In spite of all these precautions, Justinian himself eventually falls sick due to the plague, but he miraculously makes a recovery. But while Justinian is able to recover from the plague, his country appears not to be. There's a lot of historians who, for some time, suggested that this plague is what contributes to the fall of the Roman Empire, um, in part, no doubt, due to the length of the plague, because whereas some plagues, they'll last for one year, they'll last for two years, some will even last for three years. The plague of Justinian comes and goes, hitting the poor people of the Roman Empire, spreading more and more death with every wave-like recurrence. The overall length of time for the plague of Justinian appears to be about 200 years. 200 years. That's so many generations. During this time, approximately 80% of people who are infected by the plague succumb to the plague, especially those located in poorer parts of the city. In fact, it's predicted between 25 and 100 million people died, which is about a third of the population of Europe, an absolutely sickening amount. In the end, Pestis just runs out of people to kill and eventually just appears to burn out. And so just like that, it vanishes again. 
it disappears again for another 600 years. During this time, the world appears to know some measure of respite from Pestis, with small, um, unconfirmed pockets of the plague showing up here and there in history. It's only years later, in the 14th century, that more tales start to emerge from history, and it sets up the most dramatic and deadly plague that we have ever recorded. At this time, in the 14th century, Europe is going through a bit of a renaissance. The scholastic era is in full tilt. It's ushering in a period of intellectual inquiry, which eventually will, um, some say, will give rise to the Age of Enlightenment, which is a surprise and welcome shift after the, the Dark Ages prior. Um, but it is upon this burgeoning civilization of Europe that the Black Plague descends. It has never been quite totally figured out how it happens, to my understanding. But evidence would appear to suggest that a stream of continuous infection and inoculation comes from Central and Eastern Asia into Eastern and then Western Europe. A continual rush of plague reservoirs like rats and other rodents infest commercial trade routes, injecting Europe again and again and again with fleas overrun by Yersinia pestis, which has again been waiting quietly for another opportunity to strike. And so, suddenly, in October of 1347, five slightly different genetic variants of the plague all rush into Europe at once, spreading rapidly through France, through Spain, through Germany, through Austria, through Switzerland, through London, through Scandinavia, burning through all of Europe, leaving another trail of bodies in its wake. In a numbingly short five-year period, only five years, 25 million people have died. Again, a third of Europe gone in just a matter of years. Now, um, history is replete with descriptions of this awful time, descriptions of the deaths, descriptions of the symptoms, the societal, religious, and governmental unrest and fear. Um, but we're not going to dwell on these now. It would take more than just it would take more than just a short podcast to really, really get into the nitty gritty and describe it entirely. And that's really not the point of this podcast. Um, and even then, we probably couldn't fully understand it. It does actually spawn a number of things that we associate with the plague now. Um, that would include things like plague doctor masks, certain types of bloodletting, and other such practices. In fact, it, it's likely, actually, that the plague doctor masks did help to a certain extent, since they oftentimes wouldn't be breathing the same air, or at least the, uh, the same as, as close to the infected individuals as others. And so to a certain extent, that would offer a certain amount of protection. So if you really want to, next time you want to protect yourself from disease, feel free to pop on a plague doctor mask. Um, but in any event, the plague continues to burn its way through the world. Ultimately, it kills up to two-thirds of Europe and one-third of the Middle East, a staggering 200 million people before it vanishes again, 200 million lives. The plague leaves Europe utterly devastated, um, but it's around here that mankind starts to make a bit of a comeback. It's right about this time that there's a lot of scientists that are starting to to grow out of the ashes, and they start poking around trying to learn more about this awful disease and perhaps if they could cure it. Now, while Pestis appears to stay quiet again for some time, it makes a third and fourth attack about 500 years later. The third attack by Pestis emerges in 1855 in China, which leads to thousands of more cases. Another one occurs in Hong Kong. The one in Hong Kong is especially noteworthy for two reasons. First, this plague was possibly the harshest of all of the ones mentioned specifically because of the fatality rate, with some estimates clocking in at around 95% death, an absolutely unprecedented number. 
Here the plague kills 20,000 people, but it's also worth mentioning for another important reason. Two scientists named Alexander Yersin and Kitasato Shibasaburo, excuse me, I may have butchered that name, they make contact with the Yersinia pestis during the plague. Now, Kitasato is inspired by Robert Koch, who famously discovered tuberculosis, and he is determined to similarly find out what is causing this horrible, awful disease. Yersin, a researcher and a doctor, is similarly motivated. And almost totally independent of each other, the two of them discover and culture this terrible bacteria. And Yersin, a longtime student of the famous scientist Louis Pasteur, manages to put two and two together, discovering that pestis, Yersinia pestis, is the one that is causing the disease. Now, while it is super good and awesome to identify the problem, indeed, that's like half the battle to a certain extent, this is meaningless unless there's a suitable therapy that can deal with the bacteria. And that is why the plague, though it had been uncovered at that point, still tried to cause infections here and there throughout history. But with increases in good hygiene, sterile practices, clean water, all these different societal changes, pestis was gradually getting beaten back. And it was when antibiotics were introduced as therapies that Yersinia pestis suffered its final defeat. And so, by the 1930s, before even the Second World War, Yersinia pestis, that ambitious and vicious bacteria, which used, which was used to, which caused death of literally hundreds of millions of people, it was subdued and overpowered by mankind and its tiny antibiotics. Now today, if you were to get Yersinia pestis, then you could use antibiotics as a way to effectively blunt Yersinia whenever it rears its ugly head. Occasionally, it'll try and make a comeback in small pockets of the world, but quick and simple antibiotics actually make short work with the bacteria. In fact, the deadliest outbreak that we've had in modern history was only about 150 people about a decade ago. Now, Yersinia pestis and all of its secrets, they are studied and dissected in labs all around the United States and around the world. And in this way, scientists and mankind want to stay not one, not two, but many steps ahead of the bacteria. Um, while it is true that plagues from Yersinia pestis are a thing of the past, the bacteria is still there, and it is still waiting, looking, looking for ways past the tireless scientific minds to keep it at bay, always looking for another opportunity to unleash itself upon the world. Anyway, that is what I have for you guys today. A bit of a spooky ending to the Yersinia pestis story, how it works, and how the history of the disease. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Um, I will have to do something a little happier and a little less spooky next time. But in order to figure out what that episode is, you will just have to come back next week. But until then, guys, thank you again for all of your support. Thanks so much for hanging out whenever you're doing so. And I hope I will see you guys next time on another episode of Short Stories Back to You.